Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. I'm here today at George Mason University with Bill Johnson, who is Deputy Program Manager in Naval Sea Systems Command and was one of the founding fathers of the Acoustic Rapid COTS Insertion Program, or ARCI, which is one of the great programs pioneering open architecture and led to outcomes that were better, faster, and cheaper. He has an amazing career in uniform and in civilian, so he speaks from a huge deal of experience. Bill, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Thank you, Eric. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad you could join. We've had some great conversations, so I think this is going to be a really good time here. But can you just start us out? So there's the ARCHI program that came out in the 1990s. It really was a change in how the department tends to do business, and specifically the ARCHI was for undersea sonar, or that's where it at least started. So yeah. can you just talk about what was the need for driving this change, and what was the context of that? Yeah. In the mid-90s, it became apparent to the submarine force that, they're, that they no longer had what was termed acoustic superiority. And basically, with sonar, we were used to tr- detecting and classifying our adversary and being able to stand off far enough so that they, did, they weren't aware that we were there. So... Well, what was happening was that there were some events where secrets were divulged to the Russians. John Walker, this was in the early 90s or late 80s, divulged some communications that the Navy had and sold it to the Russians. And all of a sudden, their submarines became very quiet. And the result was when we were operating in an area where there was a lot of things going on, we were getting dangerously close. The fear was we'd collide with our adversary, and uh, that was unacceptable. And so Admiral DeMars, who's a descendant of Rickover, he was in charge of nuclear reactors for the Navy. He's the senior submariner. He commissioned a study to look at what was going on. Why did we lose this superiority, and what can we do to fix it? And so he put together a, a, a review team looking at uh, getting to the details. And the review team was made up of individuals that weren't necessarily working on submarine sonar, but were smart and knew how to ask the right questions. And I think one of the things that really impressed me about this team was that they not only looked at what we were doing in terms of building sonars, but they also looked at how the fleet was using that and what was actually happening on the forward areas. And they came up with a set of recommendations, and the recommendations are, it was a presentation that was about, took two hours to give, and about a set of slides, maybe an inch thick. But the bottom line of the presentation was that we needed to start collaborating within the Navy. There's other people, other than submarines, that do sonar. So the surveillance community, the service ship community, they had sonar too. So how do we collaborate with these communities? We had to get the fleet more involved in uh, the design. How do we give them something that they can actually use? And one of the problems with the system that we had out there, our so-called legacy system, was that the system was a very good system, but there was a lot of capability in there that was going untapped. 
and the sailors didn't necessarily take advantage of everything that they had. And the other part was the technology was fairly old. It was technology that we had developed. It was a militarized technology. The gaming industry was taken off on the commercial sector. Computers, processors were getting in widespread use, and they needed to take advantage of all the technology improvements, and they were, and we weren't. We were stuck with our legacy system. So we, I looked at this, and a lot of people looked at this as a skeptical. We, we had built systems a certain way because these are going on machines that go to war. They had to be survivable. We had to make something that the sailors could use. And I think the big disconnect was I don't think we really, the acquisition community, when I say we, we really had a good feel for what was actually happening on deployments. So this, this oversight group, this TP that was put together, uh, Submarine Sonar Technology Panel, they brought some things to light that I think was a surprise to me. And uh, I wasn't that familiar with what the other sonar communities were doing. We, we didn't do collaboration. We had assumed that we had the best, we had the best people, and we had great people. Our prime contractor was Lockheed Martin. At the time, it was IBM, then it changed to Laurel, then Lockheed, but the same people, basically. And they're wonderful people, very smart, very accomplished. We had a Navy laboratory that was very good. They had been around working in submarine sonar for a long time, so they knew what they were doing. And I think the assumption was, hey, we had the best people. We had the best ideas. And it turned out, I was convinced that we didn't. There's a lot to learn out there that we don't know about. There was a, a lot of benefit from collaboration with these other communities. I think the other thing that uh, was evident to me was that the community is broken up into segments. You have one segment that does production, you have another segment that did advanced development, and you had another segment that does closer to the science and technology. And those communities, they interacted via memos and reports, but there wasn't a close, if you're talking about a team, it wasn't a, a close-knit community. There was a lot of breaks in there. And uh, so I think one of the things that was evident to me was, hey, we got to bring these people together as a team and really focus on this acoustic superiority issue. My job was to feed this team with information. And they started in the spring, the early spring, and finished and reported out in September. But by the time they reported out, I was fully on board with their findings. And the problem that I was having was that even though I, I understood their findings and I already had a pretty good idea of how I'd like to attack it, it flew in the face of the business model that NUACAD, or Naval Agency Warfare System, and Lockheed Martin, or at the, in those days IBM. The business model was you had a prime contractor that kind of oversees all the technical work, and if there's a need for a subcontractor, they would bring them in through their umbrella. And you had a, a division of responsibilities between the contractor, the prime contractor, and the Navy laboratory. You know, I, I look at it as we had a, the range was divided with a fence, and there was a little bit of squabbling on where that fence lied, but basically the territories were well understood. So what my idea was, hey, let's bring in some other players. And uh, those players were academia and small business. And let's put them on an even keel with our Navy laboratory and our prime contract. And I refused to call the prime contractor a prime contractor anymore. I'd call them a prime integrator because they didn't control all the pieces. And I wanted to have competition continual, not just 
compete. We'd still have Jesse Owens as the fastest man if we operated with these kind of setup. We have prime contractors that have been there for 50 years. And you look at the Department of Defense and the big contractors, they've been around for a long time. And there's we talk about competition, but we haven't infused a way to, to have competition. These small businesses have a lot of smart people. And the, the typical reaction from what I call the incumbents that we had, the people that have been working sonar for a long time, was that, hey, we can solve this with more money. We typically had a lot of money, but with the with this end of the Cold War, our R and D profile had been decreased 70 percent. So we had 30 percent of what we were used to having. And so the idea that I'll just the general manager at Lockheed Martin told me, or at IBM, I keep saying Lockheed, at IBM told me, hey, he says we've got deep pockets, we can keep this going while you go get more money. And my point was, hey, we're in this problem. We're part of the problem. We're part of the problem while we have this issue. And I'm bringing in other people. I'm not getting rid of anybody. I'm not firing anybody. But I want real competition in here, and I want more ideas. And so we need to have the better ideas. We need to get take advantage. We, had, we didn't have the money we were used to when we were building all our own computers and all the militarized things. So we have to leverage. We have to leverage the commercial side. We have to, I have to leverage smart people that are working in other communities that do sonar and not just other communities, but also these, the advanced development people and the, the DARPAs, people like that, that are closer to the front end of science and technology. So how do I get them focused? And so what we did was we set up these monthly meetings where I brought all these different groups in. It was about 20 people. And we had those monthly meetings every month for the seven years that I ran this program. And the idea from the monthly meeting was, hey, let's be a team. Let's get together. Let's talk about what our issues are. And everybody had different issues, and there was plenty of issues we had to work out. But it was worthwhile having a day meeting once a month. And then we had, I think, and the meeting wasn't really to do work. It was to just talk. Here's what our issues are. Here's what we're trying to do. Here's what my problem is and doing my piece. It was a place to vet issues, but I think the idea was form a team, focus on the, the problem, which was acoustic superiority, and we needed it now. It was not something that we could say, let's take four, the typical time for a major change in sonar at the time was four to six years. It could be longer depending on what you were doing. We didn't have that kind of time. We needed it, we needed it fixed today. And we also didn't have the money that we had before. So this idea of leveraging was very important. Leveraging the commercial sector. What were they doing? Moving fast. We didn't have, there's a lot of people that had attached themselves to the program that really were no value added. And how do you deal with those people? And who are they? So one of the one of the first things I remember doing was just making a list. Who are the people that are going to be on board with this and who aren't? You know, I had to have a strategy to deal with both sides. Other than the fleet was probably, they're my customer, so I had to deal directly with the fleet. And I felt accountable to them for doing this. But we had another, probably the second in importance as far as, as a critical player, this is Congress. And so I had to develop a way to deal with Congress and make sure that they understood what we were doing and they were backing us. And we had a, a lot of people over at Congress that were, their agenda was to get small business involved. And so that was really helpful to me. And uh, although I did deal directly with some of the people over there, 
I had one of the small businesses that, that we hired. I had a very close relationship with people on the Armed Services Committee. I had one of my support contractors who was well-known on the Hill and could tell me what was going on. So I spent a lot of time thinking about Congress and how, that they, were, how they would react to what we were doing. And I wanted to make sure that they were friendly to what we were doing because I knew, I didn't know how much, but I knew that somewhere down the line, funding was going to be involved. And I wanted them to be supportive of what I was doing. So, get, so getting the fleet supported, the actual operators in the fleet, and getting Congress, that, that was two, two organizations that were really important for this. I think with the assumptions, I talked about that a little bit, the assumptions about how you do business, and we've always done it this way, that kind of thing, that's a bad assumption. I think that experience is a two-edged sword. You can have a lot of experience doing things the wrong way or doing things a way that might have made sense 20 years ago, but that doesn't make sense today. And so I'm not saying that was completely useless, that kind of experience, but it wasn't really particularly helpful in forging a new way. I look at the the management of these programs. We have, I put them in two categories, managers. You have one category that drives trains. And there's a track. They stay on the track. They keep a schedule. They have products that they're moving from here to there. And their job is to keep the train moving in the right direction. Then you have another program manager. He's not dealing with tracks anymore. He's on the, he's on the edge of the wilderness. He's got a pioneer and there aren't any tracks out there. And so he's got to live by his wits. And that's how I felt I was. I was on the edge of the wilderness. There's Indians out there, people that shoot arrows at you. I think anybody who's been a pioneer in this acquisition business is familiar with catching arrows. And they come from different directions and unexpected directions. I I think the tendency is to think that the prime contractors of the world are going to be the worst, the hardest to deal with. They're not. The hardest people to deal with are people within the government. It's a bureaucracy. It's these people that want to want to take credit for anything that happens that are good and are experts at deflecting credit, taking the blame, assigning the blame to somebody else. We've got a ton of those people. And this is a culture that has been that's been there for the 50 years that I've been involved in this business, on the periphery and right in the middle of it. We've got a lot of people that aren't really carrying their weight, but are in charge or in the leadership positions. And and I think that that needs to change. There's a lot of discussion, and it's, I've heard this discussion over many years about the bureaucracy and we can't get things done. And if only Congress would do this or we ch- got to change the laws. Everything we did was within the law. We just took advantage of things where it were, people assumed that you couldn't. Our program, we had an existing program that needed to change. And we had an existing set of contractors, but I wanted to bring in new people. And we didn't violate any law. And by collaborating with other communities, that didn't violate any law. And I think there was a lot of skepticism that what we did would work. And one of the things that really helped us was we were going fast. We set a date. The people that work for me is a small group, and I wanted to get something out there in a year. We did it in a year and a half. That's what they thought we could do. And I said, okay, let's give the fleet something that will let us regain acoustic superiority in a year and a half. And But we're not going to eat the elephant in one bite. We're going to take a piece. So we, we took the piece of the sonar, and we took a piece that – we thought would have the broadest benefit to the fleet. We had the tote arrays. It was long, like a long hose full of underwater hydrophones. And the, the tote array system we had on 
most of the fleet was a TV-23 system. It was, it was a thin line array. There was a longer array was in the works. And actually, we had deployed on some ships with the old legacy system. So we focused on this TB-23 array for our first phase. So what can we do with that TB-23 array that'll make the system more operable? And so we took advantage of an SBIR that the small business had to build a system that was envisioned to be a system they could take to sea on a new class of submarines, which became the Virginia class. And if there's if the regular sonar, if the militarized sonar wasn't ready, this COTS version of a sonar could at least get them through some of their trials. And but it turned out that COTS version had pretty much everything we needed for that first phase of ARC. And then there was a fight over whose system should we use. And the laboratory had a system, and the small business had a system that was already funded. The system here. You're taking like an off-the-shelf array, and then the real problem is the proce- data processing and da- getting algorithms. So that's like when you say system, it's yes. more about that yes. part. Yes, it's the software that you use to process the information that, that you receive through these arrays, and it's also the hardware that you put it on. So rather than build new hardware or upgrade the hardware we had on our existing system with the militarized hardware, we'll just use off-the-shelf hardware. The question about survivability of that hardware, we had to look at that too. And so we came up a way of cocooning that system within a hardened container so that the container would absorb all the shock and stuff and the the commercial equipment inside would be protected. And so our display consoles, the old display consoles had what we call a monochrome display, but was a black and green kind of display. And there was a lot of ideas coming out about how we could employ color and use and actually use larger displays that were survivable so we made changes to to bring in that new technology and i think one of the things that we did that was really a benefit was we put together a a team we call the concept of operations operator machine interface team conops omi team and these were a collection of navy chiefs who were considered experts within the Navy. And one of my consultants was a former Navy captain who was one of these guys that had a lot of respect, was respected widely within the fleet for his ability to to drive ships and lead ships. And he helped me pick out these particular sailors. And so these guys initially were skeptical because they were brought in to give their ideas on what they want before. I mean, it wasn't a new thing. But I don't think it was... They were brought into, hey, what do you think? Give me a thumbs up, that kind of thing. We weren't really using their brains. And in this case, no, we, I was really wanting to know what they thought was going to be useful. So we formed this team, and we got their parent commands to allow them to come to Washington once a month and participate in this session that I had, the SSTG, Submarine Sonar Technology Group, and to give us their opinion on what they want to see. And they also spent time working at both the prime contractor or my prime integrator, IBM, and with the small business that we had hired, we decided to use their system. That was Digital Systems Resources out in Fair Lakes here. And they spent time working with their engineers and helping them come up with the display formats and how do we make this system something that the operator can use. They did all kinds of things that I didn't envision. One of the things they did was they devised a test that they gave to about 
200 operators. And the test was a, a test of their ability to recognize what we were seeing on the screen. What's this? And the, the average, we had three bell curves if you looked at the results of the test. And the biggest bell curve was at about 25% on the test. That's getting 25% of the questions correct. And that was everybody from the greenest boot sailor to the E9s that taught in sub-school were in that bell curve. The top bell curve was at close to 80%, and that was what they call stick riders. But they're the ones that, that from Office of Naval Intelligence, and they would go out and ride on ships that are on deployment. It's the Jonesies, if you will, if you remember the hunt for Red October. So the stick riders were getting about an 80%. And the stick riders in training were getting about a 55% or 50%. And so what they were showing me was that we have a huge problem in training. The average sailor is only getting 25% on the test. But you only discovered this because like, you guys actually went out to go test it and you're getting much lower scores than it, you expected. Yeah, right? but also I, training wasn't something that came under my purview. So one of the, one of the problems was that even though training wasn't my under my responsibility, I think that the, the typical program manager wouldn't pay attention to those kind of scores, would never ask for that kind of thing. It reminds me of the Fitzgerald where they introduced a new navigation system yeah. with like new software. They didn't train the guys on it, and it ended up in, in a catastrophe. But some of the issue was also the thing was just designed not very user-friendly at all. Yeah. But then there's also the training question. So Absolutely. And so that, that, this is one of the things that I learned from our CONOPS group, these chiefs. They saw that there was a problem in training. They understood that was going to happen. It wasn't necessarily something that I would have predicted. I knew that from my experience early in my career, I was a Navy officer involved in SO, which was a passive sonar. I knew how to read grams. I was a qualified analyst. I knew that how SOSA's people, their capabilities pretty much, and how they went about doing it. And from I spent a lot of time at sea, which is another difference that I think that the, the average program manager or assistant program manager or government engineer doesn't do. I've been to sea every time we had a, a new system or a new change to a system, I would go to sea with that and, and test it. And uh, I'd learned a lot just by looking, watching what, watching what life was like in a submarine. And one of the things I saw was that I came to appreciate was the fact that these sailors have a lot of things to do other than if you're a sonar tech. You're not just doing sonar. You're maintaining that ship. And you've got responsibilities that involve keeping that ship afloat if there's a, an, an issue. So there's safety of ship issues that they all have to deal with. And uh, there's only so much time in the day. And most of their time, is you, there's no lounging time, really. Very little time to sit back with your feet up. You're working all the time. And and not all of it is on sonar for the sonar techs. So I think that how do I make their job easier? And how do I set it up so the machine does a lot of the work for them? And I think that, and that what I'm seeing today is that as technology has evolved, the machines do more and more. And the old systems we would form 52 beams. A beam is a direction that the sonar is looking and can process information in those directions. And there would be, in the newer ones, they were doing a hundred times more than that. You're collecting data and there's no way that a human being can analyze all that data. So you have to have the machine do some of the analysis. And I think that the evolution is from the data to knowledge. How do you, 
how do you get the machine and the system to come up with the knowledge based on what you're seeing? How do you offload the, all this, this work that the operator has to do? It seems like a lot of that, you have to put the business rules in there. So you have to be pretty close to the operators to have that synergy. I guess in older systems, it's just like, here's like a mechanical device. And then the human is actually doing most of the thinking and the operating that's required of it. But when you need that thinking to be done in the machine. So how did you get closer? Or you said that there were a lot of poor ideas of what was actually going on in the field. Like, how did you get closer? Was it just... You just said, I'm just going to go on like the initial deployments of all these upgrades and people don't do that? Or like, how would you? I think the, what I need to do is get the data that was what was actually happening at sea. And I needed to collect that data. And so in addition to the sonar system that I put on, I also put the ability to record everything that happened, what the button pushes were. I could recreate what was happening at sea shoreside. And then I set up a group at Johns Hopkins Shoreside to do that. And they would analyze, they would get the tapes of what happened on deployment and replay it. And and they could do it at their own speed. They didn't have to do it at real-time speed, but they could go and see that, hey, here's something here that they missed. Or it took them, by the time they recognized it, it took them 20 minutes to attach a a tracker to it, where it was there. It had been there for 20 minutes, so they're... And so I was able to come up with a quantitative way of measuring their performance. And in one of the presentations that I gave you, there's a slide that shows one of the initial results where we went from looking at the baseline system and we improved from the initial system that went out, we improved by whatever percentage that was. I think it was like 25%. And then the next iteration, which was what we call an advanced processing build, but a change to that software to to give better algorithms, better software improvements that increased again. So you could actually track how the system was improving with real data. I'll just put in some of these numbers. A 60-fold decrease in real processing costs, a 7-fold increase in sensor performance, reduced false alarms by 40%. And there was a whole bunch of other metrics that you guys also had there. But I like that idea, like you said, you just were tracking them over time because usually we have... There's a threshold and there's an objective and you don't really deploy or go out and test that until you get to the full solution and then you're able, you go through OT&E and then you're fielded. Yeah. But it seems like you're more like iterative. You're tracking over time, showing yeah. progress to various metrics that were like determined in the process of actually doing it. Well, in the system, part of the idea was, hey, let's build a system that we can continually change the hardware. And you, you, there's reasons why you don't want to do that continually but in those days I was doing it every year so the processing card that goes in there I could come up with the next one and I was my idea was let's follow Moore's law let's always give them the theoretical most processing and our ideas to start with and it we showed it on the graphs initially we thought that we could increase acoustic superiority by getting let's say an inch on the graph of performance in yeah. there but we had the capability to give 50 times that. And what we didn't have was all the software to take advantage of that capacity. So we were increasing the capacity of our system. That was one track. But the other track was continually putting in new software. So we had what we called the advanced processing build concept. But that was, let's plan on, and we did it every year to start with, 
let's upgrade the software every year and let's make this easy to do so that the person at the other end who's actually using this can do it intuitively you know that it's not a big deal for them to understand what the new stuff is and I can tell you that the younger sailors didn't have a problem with that some of the older sailors did it's just like today with the Microsoft makes a change and we're the old guys like me are scrambling to take advantage of it what how does this work why'd they change that but the newer guys can do it and I think that's one of the changes. We have to build these systems so the newer guys can do it, so they can use it. And let's build a system so that it continues to take advantage of the new technology. And let's put a logistics setup so we're not making lifetime buys of processors like in the olden days where we have enough of the old processors sitting on the shelf that were bought for lifetime buys. You could build a whole new submarine for how much it costs to put those processors on the shelf for spares. Now let's just take advantage of Moore's Law and just buy things that we need. And with an open system, the thought was, hey, we can it's the plug and play the new technology. Now it doesn't work quite that simple, but it's a lot easier than it used to be to put a new piece of hardware in. Yeah, I wanted to actually get to open architecture since Archie has done a lot of good stuff there. But I wanted to backtrack on that for a second because... You said you disaggregated the system and everything was moving at the pace that technology moves. So it seemed like you had software being released on a one-year cycle. I think in some of the case studies, they were saying you had hardware released on a two-year-ish cycle, which kind of matches with Moore's Law when they incrementally released those electronics. And then it's all being put onto a submarine that's actually a bigger platform that has, they're going to upgrade that over the course of multiple years or decades so yeah. like we have the system that's being aggregated you have different kind of contracts for different pieces of that and the navy is in there managing that at george mason we just had this acquisition next report and i think a lot of what you're saying gels with what we were trying to get at and i think we actually looked at you guys and said these are some of the things that worked and that's why we use them but i want you to just talk about first was that business structure of doing business in a different way, not just having a single prime integrator, just build the thing that kind of the Navy helped design, going into this a more disaggregated, different contracts, and you guys managing it. Was that necessary to get to open architecture? And then describe what does open architecture mean? How did that actually work and everything? Yeah. So what does that mean? You can easily get caught up in these people that come up with these pictures of different layers. And what you're trying to do is make change. And you want to set up not just the technical things, but also the business things, so that allows you to make change easily. And in dealing with the, the logistics, the actual buying the new stuff and the spares and how it all fits together, that was a hard concept to get across because we hadn't done it before. I remember the initial plan that my logistics people came to me. What they had done basically was taken the old system and crossed out the name of the old system and put the new system on there and gave that to me as a plan. And I looked at that and said, "That's not. you're missing the point here. Do it again. And by about the fourth, third or fourth iteration, they can look and throw these things in the garbage. They finally caught on to it. One of the changes was that the logistics and engineering department became a lot closer together. So you had the engineers also thinking in terms of how do we maintain this with spares? How do we introduce new pieces? How's that going to be done? And that became one of the jobs that I think that Lockheed did very well for me. By the time we got into the later phases, they had changed from IBM to Laurel to Lockheed. But I think that it wasn't the way logistics were done in other systems. It was a way that, that we had to develop. 
and the idea was we want to set it up ideally so every deployer gets the latest system. So there's a lot of moving parts in here. And so our focus was on working so the deployer gets the most current set of Moore's Law capacity and the new software that goes in there. It worked out very well, but it was different. It was certainly different. It wasn't... So people that had were stuck in the old way of doing business had a very hard time with this. I would say that it was a younger crowd that caught on and, and made it work. It's not just for getting new players, new pe- people with new algorithms or new ideas. How do I get bring them on board and get them to play as part of the team? But also, how do I get the team to understand these new concepts across the board? That was one of the, the, the advantages of having these monthly meetings because these new ideas ripple this. They're not focused on just production. They can influence how people... I remember we had a group from DARPA that were looking at their concept for an idea for combining sonar data with ESM data. And I remember the guy telling me that if if we implemented that today, we'd have to tow another submarine behind it with computers just to do this. It was going to take so much computing power, processing power. But with Moore's Law, they could see... That at this point in time, we're going to have the capacity to actually implement these ideas. And uh, so they were thinking ahead. Hey, it's a good idea. Let's continue to work on this. The capacity of the receiving system is not there yet, but it will because they have a plan. And uh, one of the things that I made sure was that everybody understood what the plan was and how it was changing and what our roadmap looked like. And I wanted the whole community, not just my own community and production but all the way into the advanced development and science and technology, I, I wanted all these people to be aware of it. You use the word roadmap rather than integrated master schedule. Is there like a difference in the way you managed it versus like regular project management in terms of those tools? Yeah. Early on in my career, I took a Brookings Institution course. We went out to Silicon Valley and we, were, we wanted to learn how they were doing things. And I remember at, we went to Intel. That's one of the places we went and we looked at their roadmaps. And the thing that surprised me was that their roadmaps only went out a couple of years. And our, the roadmaps that we had went out many years, sometimes 20 years. The difference was that they were looking at the future and they were saying, hey, a lot of this is unknown. We want to be able to prepare for it. And we want to focus on near-term things that get us to what we think the future is going to be. But we got to be prepared to change. And I think that's one of the things that we weren't doing in submarine systems. We were looking out too far and setting up traditional kind of arbitrary times based on experience of how long it took to do something and when testing should assure. And we'd come up with these long roadmaps that we'd live by. The world's not working that way. There's changes that are coming all the time, and we have to be flexible enough to adapt to that change. And we weren't flexible. So I think one of the benefits of an open system approach and an open business approach is that adaptability. You can change. You can adapt to a new situation and you can do it very quickly. So I'm just looking at parallels with what I'm seeing today when the Ukraine and Russia and the Ukraine sunk those Russian ships when they came up with an innovative way to do that, basically overloading them with a lot of drones and things. And so you wonder if that happened to us, how quickly could we adapt? It's something new that we hadn't counted on. And we need to do that. And I think that's what, you know. You'd send it to JSIDs. You'd get a requirement, hopefully urgent, within some days. And then it would take some years you before got, you get it through the system. You, yeah, budgeted. You, you, I think in our case, there was lots of requirements and stuff. We stayed within them. There was enough wiggle room so that you could do things 
and meet the spirit of the Jasons. There's a lot of people that want to want to be gatekeepers. And that that's how they view their value. And there's actually a guy called like the Jasons gatekeeper, right? <laughs> yeah. And I'm saying, no, you're not a gatekeeper. Here, our focus was acoustic superiority. And the guy that I cared about was the fleet guy. One of the most rewarding experiences I ever had was we set up this this event that we did every year. And we brought in a sailor, a sonar tech, one of the senior sonar techs from the fleet to come and talk to us about, hey, how's the system doing? And initially, when the first time we did this, it was deflating because he was talking about all these standalone systems they had, and it wasn't something that we had done. But by the time our system was out there and they had experience with it, they'd come back and tell us about how how our system or this ARCI system played in their everyday work. And it was so, we got so much, I think, the positive, if you're talking about positive feedback, I think that was the most, for me at least, personally rewarding experience I had listening to those sailors come back and talk about our system and what they could do now that they couldn't do then back so how much it improved things and i think the whole team not just i'm talking the small business university labs the the prime integrator the government people we all took pride in that even though you know you're working together you're collaborating with people that you can't stand their guts but that's the way the world is take a look at any nfl team or they have everybody knows their objective is to win the game no matter what their background is or where they're coming from they have a position to play and they do it and they do it because they want to win and in our case it was this acoustic superiority and so getting that feedback from the fleet on how the system was doing getting these measurements so we could see the tangible proof that this ch- this change we made really made a difference I think it was important to keeping the team motivated and keeping us focused. The thing, though, that I wanted to get across in this is that the ability to manage something like this is something that it's you have to be agile. You have to look at the big picture. You have to, one of the things that we did was we had a plan for what we call total ownership cost. And the Navy had a initiative, this is 20 years ago, but they had an initiative to look at total ownership cost. And I knew what the money that I was spending, and I was keeping track of that, but I wasn't keeping track outside of that. We had a plan to, hey, let's take a, see if we can take a look at the whole thing as much as we could. And it's difficult to get those numbers, but you learn a lot from this. I wanted to know how much it costs to train people. When you look at a, a, the total ownership cost of a system, it includes not just the hardware and software, but the people too. They're part of the system. And how much does it cost to groom these people and even the number of people you have on a submarine we had 15 sonar techs on a submarine and i remember early on i was looking at well can i do the job with fewer sonar techs and i got pushback from fleet people on that because hey these guys aren't just doing sonar they're doing other things we don't want you to cut the number of sonar techs on a ship and the more people you have the more cost and there's a lot of cost in people and there's a lot of the the heuristics for the old system, the legacy systems, were that 60% of the total ownership cost was in spare parts and logistics. 60%, and a relatively small percentage was in the development of the system. You know, we weren't used to looking at total ownership costs. So I think having a broader view of what's going on is important. And I think just to get all these people to play together, there, there's a, I don't know if you know about, remember the Barman Bailey Circus, <laughs> Gunther Gable Williams. He was in there, he was a lion. He was the guy with the whip and the lions, tigers, and bears. And he had to be good at his job to have a good show. 
But these are lions and tigers and bears he's dealing with. And they'll eat each other up. It'll be a bad show if he's not good at it. And it's the same way with this approach. You've got competitors that are working together, these small businesses and big businesses and university labs and Navy labs. And they want to they wanna eat. You need a ringmaster. And that's what the government should do. The government's the ringmaster. The program office or the program manager is the, the program manager is. Yeah. He is he's that guy. I think there's too many program manager that wants to just put the prime contractor in charge of the whole thing and sit back and deal with Congress or they're given the baseline plan and it's easiest just to yeah, kind of and you're dri- outsource that and, whole thing. And you're driving the train. And I say, No, we're not in that situation now with this world. You're not a train driver anymore. You've got to figure out you got a pioneer. Is that, a, is that a general principle or for a massive like submarine build? Is it still like an outsource model, but like for the subsystem? Like, where I think how general is this principle? I, to sonar. It's just been working on sonar. You know, what happened was it's done to some extent in combat control also. I had a, a Navy a commanding officer of the Asheville assigned to me to learn the ways of Washington. Claude, Claude Barron, who became a, the captain, now is an SES over at the Pentagon. But he was the one that took the sonar principles and applied them to combat control. So how do we set up combat control? That's where you do the you interface with the weapon system. You take the sonar data and you come up with localization plans. It's something that the commanding officer would deal with the system through combat control. And he was the one that took sonar principles and came up with an approach for combat control and i'll tell you he took a lot of arrows he took a lot of arrows and a very smart guy and very and this was the genesis of the open systems architecture for virginia class virginia had an approach arci and virginia kind of evolved at the same time virginia was initially more of a traditional approach let's build off the, the legacy system and arci came about at the, started at, at about the same time, but we were operating on a different schedule. We had to get something out there right away. We were much quicker to adopt commercial technology. I think that event, eventually Virginia adopted what we were doing at ARCI, but it wasn't. It didn't start. At, they didn't do it initially. They resisted it because of the change to their program. But I can see other areas that we haven't. We, you know, it's a frustrating thing for me that, to see that the Navy has not followed through and taken a lot of these lessons learned and actually implemented them. And I think that there's, there's various reasons for this. Part of it is that you have a lot of people that are bought into the, the traditional way of doing it. It's a good business model for them. And I'm not just talking about the contractors. I'm talking about on the government side, too. But there's a lot of people that are just comfortable doing it the same way. And they'll adopt all the new buzzwords and things but really they don't want to change and i think the problem is that one of the problems that they have is i don't think they're as connected with the fleet as we were on the submarine side and we had a submarine community that knew what they wanted they knew that they needed to have this acoustic superiority and they needed it quickly and it was a life or death matter for them it was they weren't messing around i think what i've seen on the service ship side for instance is what we want is our current we want our system to work we don't want it to break that's the kind of mentality and i'm saying you've got all these systems and you've got uh, one people i was talking with recently was telling me that there's 400 display formats that an operator has to sort through hey 
that's, to me, that looks like a perfect area for you know, artificial intelligence. Have the have your system sort through those display formats. You can't. It's just like in our system, we had a, we were expecting an operator to, in the old approach, to go through all this material on his own and figure it out without all these enhancements, these uh, bell ringers and things we put in the system to focus the operator in the area that you need to be focused on. And I think that this open system approach worked out very well for us. And I think it ought to be seriously looked at. The current admiral who's in charge of the acquisition for Aegis, she's set off an initiative last year, and I was invited to be on this committee looking at how do we adopt the ARCI principles for Aegis. And the problem was that they gave it over to Lockheed Martin to to run the program, to run the study. And they're good people. They're smart. They work hard and they do a lot. But they're not thrilled about bringing in small business to be an alternative for them. It's not helping their business model. And I think there's, this admiral is going to need a lot of support. She's an admiral. but To claw back some of those component pieces. Or just people that don't want to change, that like what we're doing. Even within the submarine community, I remember going through my notes preparing for this. There was a Navy captain at the time that didn't like the fact that we were changing so often. He wanted to keep it the same for 10 years so we'd have an opportunity to really learn all the ins and outs of that. The world's not going to sit still for 10 years. Things, the world's changing. we got to be able to change with it or take advantage of that, you know, what we can. And I think there's a, if you're looking for a, a nice, smooth, easy path, this isn't an easy path. But it's, it's challenging and it's fun. And I think everybody who was involved in the ARCI program saw that fun and felt the reward for actually seeing it work and seeing their ideas in it. Everybody was accountable, but everybody would get the recognition for something they did, and everyone would know it. And I think that too often in these programs, the top guy gets recognition and nobody else gets it. So I think I think this is a way. You talked about being there be Indians out there and taking arrows for this. And there's probably a lot of people listening that want to try this kind of in their own context. So can you just talk a little bit about who was on board and who wasn't on board? Because you said, okay, well, we had all these good tests and data and we showed, hey, we're making improvements. But a lot of people can't even like in these government program offices, get money or, you know, approvals to even start something small enough that they could show progress and bring it out. And like you said, you can't take the whole elephant, but take a piece, show improvement there, and then build out and take these innovative approaches. Who was it for you? Who was against you? How'd you do that? And what would you say to a young contracting officer or program manager today? You know, initially, I thought that I looked at the businesses. How am I changing their business model? So I looked at our prime contractor that became our prime integrator. And I looked at the Navy lab. And how is this going to change their business model? And are they going to fight it? And I'll tell you that in the case of the prime contractor, they didn't like it. They started and they tried to convince me that, hey, let's novate this small business innovative research program to me let me run it because this is going to be too this is going to be too much for you to do and i expected that and i was right up front with them i didn't mince words i said no you're complicit in this problem that the fleets have today because we didn't do certain things that we should have i'm complicit because i worked on the government side and i had a lot of assumptions about how things were going that turned out to be wrong 
and we're going to go with it. And to Lockheed's credit, they saw that the Navy really wanted this, and in the end, they supported it. They did an excellent job. They were able to work with these small businesses and university labs, and they accepted their role. And so I was very thankful for that. Now, Lockheed's a big company, and I had the Manassas sector of Lockheed, which is a relatively small sector within the whole company. But they adopted it because they could see that it was working and they could see that, the, that if they were viewed as a naysayer or not complicit, it wouldn't look good. It would be exposed people because people would know. But also, hey, the way I saw it, if they lay down, if they're not going to do it, then I'll have somebody else do it. When it came time to using this ConOps team to come up with new display formats, there was the, the engineer at Lockheed who was, had worked on display formats for his entire career but didn't like it. He objected mightily, and I said, we'll give the display formats to DSR then. And people got on board. There's carrots and sticks. That's a stick way of getting people on board. How about from the the government side? The government side, the biggest problem I had was people in leadership positions within the the acquisition community that uh, wanted to take credit for it but weren't really involved in the day-to-day details. But did they stop you from? Were oh they yeah, like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They wouldn't because they saw that I had such strong support from my sponsor and the fleet. So nobody was going to mess with it because we were walking the talk and actually walking much better than the talk. And we had a day. I remember uh, you took a lot of arrows, and uh, you can just decide. I had to decide for myself: Am I going to let these arrows kill me or hurt me or or not? Do you feel like it threatened your career at that point? Oh, absolutely. Let me tell you, my mentor, Dr. Bob Snugs, who was the one that took sonar, d- developed the first digital sonar for submarines, and he's an icon in the submarine community. He, he actually got fired because the Navy laboratory was so upset at him for taking control of the system, and they put him over in surveillance. And, uh, so he, he wasn't uh, fired, he was just moved. He was classic moved, government. Mo- moved. Another classic one is moving people up <laughs> into a higher position someplace where they're more, it's more abstract, you know, what they do. And uh, I've seen that a lot. People get, they're taken care of by just moving them out of the way. So they're not in, if you're a threat to actually getting things done and people are paying attention to what you're doing and you're giving in information so it's clear to everybody where you are, then People take care of you, and that's what happened in our case. And Bob was this. Bob Snugs was uh, came back and helped me on the ARCI. He was in charge of the technical community on surveillance that I got a lot of good ideas from. And so he helped mold the two communities together to for collaboration. And even though our budget had been cut so much, we still had a, a good budget compared to the budget they had. And the deal that I had was with Bob and his people were that. Hey, w- any of the development work, we're funded, but we'll give you the results for free. And for your cooperation, for your involvement, your smart people getting and helping me get this out. And so we had a very good collaborative relationship with that community. Yeah, Can you talk a little bit about just how did you actually build that team for ARCI, ARCI? And was it different than a regular program office structure? Or yeah. if it was, what was different about it? I think... The idea about bringing in all these players was, I think my best technical support was really these other teams, these other companies that I brought in, because they all had a vested interest in this succeeding and this being really open. And if somebody tried to close the system, they would let me know. So typically the government would perform that function, 
and not as well. It wouldn't be a life or death situation. But here I had all these team members looking out for themselves, but also looking out for the integrity of the team. This is towards the end of my time with Team Submarine, but I was asked, all the people at my level were asked to come up with their organization, a downsize organization. And the goal was for the command to downsize by 30%. And my presentation was that I'm a government person. I have to be a government person. My, my money guy, the, the guy that maintains our budget, he needs to be a government person. And everybody else can be a contractor. I could do, I went from 50 people, I could say I could do it with four people, four government people to run this. And, of course, they didn't. Yeah, what did they say to that? <laughs> no, they, they kind of liked it. It was an eye-opener. Nobody else was coming up with something like that. But I'm saying... But you wouldn't need additional budget or O&M money for that? You're no. saying, like, I'll just do it with what I got. Exactly. They'll take those people and put them elsewhere. Exactly. Did that actually help you? Because... Like in the history, I, I saw like in the 60s and 70s, there's a lot of discussion. European design teams were like very small and they only had maybe 10 people in the program office on the government side. Whereas in the U.S., it was 200, 300, 500 people on the government program office well, side. Your, your grade is a function of the number of people you supervise. Right. And so I'm saying, you know what? You shouldn't do that. Your importance to the organization has nothing to do with the number of people you're supervising. They're government people. You're what? You want to get the job done. It has to do with getting the job done. In our, my case, regaining acoustic superiority. If I'm a GS-15, the models, the old models would have 50 people working for me, or whatever the number was. And it's decreased over the years. But at one time, I had 50 people. If I counted everybody, I didn't need that. But my focus is acoustic superiority, and everything else is up for grabs. And... And I think that one of the things that helped me was actually acting on my ideas. When I set it up, I set it up, well, if I'm doing sonar out of my garage, what would I need? And I set it up that way. That's what I need. And I didn't fire anybody, but I'm saying, this is what I need. And if you're not doing your job, I'll get somebody that can do that. I think one of the problems I had was the contracts. And the people that work in contracts is a separate group. It, they didn't work for me, but they worked. I employed contracts people. They would. Uh, they weren't open to some of my ideas, or they weren't innovative. And in, but they weren't on your team. You, they were matrix from. Their they own. were matrix from another organization. But I, I was given a guy who was. I'm not sure how well he was viewed within the contracts organization, but from my point of view, he was great. He took time to understand what we were trying to do. When it came time to putting the contract together, one of the innovative things that, that he did that I thought was a great idea was we were used to, I referred to it as playing volleyball with the contractor. The government guy would get it and write it up and he'd throw it over the, the net and then the contractor would get it and he'd do that and then he'd throw it over the net and play volleyball. He put them both on the same side. They worked it together. You know, to sit in the room with the contractor and just hammer out the proposal? Yes. And it worked great. Did it very fast. Much faster than normal. How and long would you get that at? What was the cycle time decrease there? We did it. We had our first, it was on the order of a few months, as opposed to it could be a year or so. So good savings. Very good savings. You would you you recommend know. that as like a best practice? But were you in a sole source, you were in a sole source kind of environment? I had contracts in place already. Yeah. I had a contract for a prime contractor. I had a, I was bringing in contracts, SBIRs and stuff. 
But what I wanted the contractor to do was to the prime contractor. I didn't want him to fight what we were doing, and I wanted him to be part of the solution. So when I wrote the contract for the small business, in in our case to start with, it was DSR, and I had one for what became Lockheed. I put a clause in both their contracts where it was a ward fee that if we're successful, you get get 100%. If one guy is successful and the other guy is not successful, you both get a zero. So they had to build an incentive to make sure the other guy was successful. I love that. (laughs) Yeah. And it worked. And uh, with a lot of these things, you go into it and you don't know if it's going to work or not because you're pioneering. You hadn't tried it before. But you go in with a positive attitude and you follow through and you get a reputation for following through and people tend to follow. I went out to a going away for the chief engineer at Lockheed. He retired this past spring. And the spirit in that group, there was about 100 people there, was great. It was it's still maintained over all those years, getting along with your competitor and producing value added to the fleet. And I really... Sounds was, like Rickover seems to have decades-long impact on that culture of submarines. So you're I, saying like when you like really get this right, that culture persists. It's not just like the individuals involved. You can have that like a running concern. I think you do. I think it, it exists because it's successful. It works. And I think people see that it works. And uh, Has it been replicated enough? Or no. It, it seems it, like it works and then it's self-perpetuated within the program. But how about other programs? What it, happened? It just doesn't. You need to have somebody that, a change agent, if you will. And he's got to be there He's got to be persistent for a while. And like when we were looking at those programs, it's the, those communication programs, they needed a change. They needed a change, change agents that's pers- persistent. And oh, JATSE too, right? JATSE too. And you get a, a general in there. Well, that's nice. But that he's general, gonna be gone he's going to be gone. And how inc- long were you there? Seven years. I was seven years since we started the program. And Ayers. you were in, you were lifelong basically in the community and yes. for this one yes. position you or, and yeah you were there for seven years yeah, and then yeah. they and they i was recruited to go into peoiws which was setting up the navy how the navy was going to do it and i worked for a service ship captain a captain jen shannon who was great he understood what we were trying to do he was a ship driver first smart guy and he was persistent and he backed us and but the problem was that we got a lot of documentation, guidance document, that uh, type of things signed out by all the way up through the 18L guy. Yeah. I forgot who it was. John Young at the time? It was John Young and then the successor. Gansler was before him. I forget. Gansler. Yeah. I, I've dealt with all those guys. <laughs> Gansler. And they're all for it. They liked it, uh-huh. but they're so far removed from the day-to-day thing. The day-to-day people can wait them out, and that happens continually. I think you need to have a way to hold these people accountable at the work, the, what I would call working level leadership, people that are running the program. And they need to have visibility. And when you find people that can do that, you need to reward them and make an example of them. And unfortunately, the kind of example that was set with Bob Snugs and to some extent myself was you do this and you get killed, you get arrows. Even though you come out with uh, a superior, yeah, an obviously superior product, yeah. But I've since I've retired, I've gone out as and consulted and things, and I've been with the National Academy of Science, and worked with a committee that was set up to improve the prototyping of things with the Air Force, and this is at the three-star level and the four-star level retired guys, 
and uh, Elon Musk. Those guys that work for him, it's pretty high-level stuff. And at the high level, they want to do this. And the, the problem is that they don't know how to get down to the, the grassroots level. level. And I think the assumption is that because I'm a general, I'll tell you to do it and you'll do it. Well, no, not necessarily. You'll, they'll go limp or they'll adopt your buzzwords and not understand really what the buzzword is. Well, we see a lot of that today. Like, where's that translational phase? Or is it really just responsibility of an individual like yourself willing to take that on and do that translation? So, yeah. If you're breaking new ground, if you're in an area where you really need some pioneer, you got to pay it real close attention to who your leaders are going to be. And how do you protect them? How do you reward them? What is a plan for re- replacing them if you need to, or if you don't need to, if they retire or move on to something else, who's next in line? What are the, the measures of effectiveness that you're going to put for these people? What's on their fitness report? How are you going to grade them? And you've got to be serious about it. Some of this stuff that we're doing, I, I'm looking at it from afar now and wondering, what are we really trying to do here? Why are we doing this? And I can tell you that artificial intelligence, there's two areas I think that really need to be focused on, artificial intelligence and cybersecurity. Where are we going to use artificial intelligence? And you get these blank stares from some people. I don't know. But if you get online and you take a look at some of these people over over in the Orient, they have this game called Go. And I was watching, the, they're coming up with, somebody's come up with a computer program that will play chess, but play this game Go. Yeah. I've never, Alpha Go. I'd never heard of the game. It's a thousand years old. or yeah. two thousand. And they've come up with, over time, computer programs that will actually be able to successfully challenge, even beat some of the, the world masters. And it's much more harder for a computer to do that than just chess is much more constrained yeah, now, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And okay, now, what do we, now, how do we take a problem we have and apply it to artificial intelligence? And who's going to do that for us? Is it going to be the people sitting over in the Navy lab that have been working on the same problem for 50 years? Or even a new problem? We've gone past what we did in ARCI. How are we dealing with, how are we going to, how are we going to harness artificial intelligence? And who's going to do it for us? And what's our plan? And what do we need it for? Where is artificial intelligence really going to help us today? Well, isn't it just like people that are experiencing it and doing these programs, for example, you with the sensors. You just have a bunch of data that you know because of the context you've been working with these people. There's just too much for them to go through. This looks like a good use case, but it's hard for some random person in Big Navy or in OSD to even know where that problem is. So yeah. it doesn't have to be defined well, at that some, level. It does. It does. Well, somebody's got to define it for them. Most of the people that are at those high levels, I'm not sure what they define. Abstraction, right? That's yeah, abstraction. I tune into Potomac Institute symposiums or talks every so often and one of the recent ones had to do with making changes to the way we do acquisition and they had three people on a committee one one person was a woman that worked for the british embassy and one person was a former atl guy and the other person was the other two were both former atl guys the other one was named will roper yep okay and this guy, Will Roper, looked like he was going to jump through the screen. He was, like, sitting on the edge of his chair. And, and he clearly was wanted to do things differently. Open architecture was one of the things that he was advocating. And I'm thinking, I don't know if I agreed with everything he said, but he was at least a guy that I thought was going to make a difference if given the chance. And I don't know if he's he's not over there anymore. So nope. he's working a drone business or something. But the other guys... I think he just left, by the way, but he, so we'll see what's up with uh, Roper next, but yeah. Yeah, I thought he was interesting, so I commented, and they have a way to comment 
And so none of my questions or comments made it to the floor. So I gave comments and I said, there was a guy I used to work with. I, I worked on a program called D2D, which was the data to decision. So it had to do with when you fly over someplace and you're taking a picture of what's going on there and there's all kinds of data. And, but the Air Force does that, the Navy does it, and everybody. How do you get those groups to work together? And so this professor at MIT came down to take that job. And he wanted me to be on it. And I had retired from the Navy. He had me write the ground rules for this program. So basically, how do you get these two, three organizations, Army, Navy, and Air Force, how do you get them to work together on this? Anyway, to make a long story short, the, the program, this professor went back to some North Carolina state and took over their computer department. And then they always asked if I wanted to come in and run it. And I didn't, wasn't interested in coming back in the government at the time. I probably would have killed myself if I had taken that job because it takes a heavy toll on you. I gained about 50 pounds and oh, wow. my hair turned white. I, it just, it's hard. It is hard. And it was, that's a 24-7 job. I was working Sundays and I'd be at my desk at 6 in the morning and get home at 7 or and then work in the evening. So it's a hard job. And you're working with people that they're Indians. <laughs> and, but it's fun. It's rewarding. It's the kind of job that I've always wanted to work in a job where I can make a difference. And I think that's how I think everybody on the program was feeling like they were making a difference and they could see themselves in their work and they were enjoying being accountable for it because they were being given credit for doing good things. Yeah, I tend to feel like when these organizations get large and programs get stretched out over many years, it's easy for an individual to get lost in it. They can't contribute their creativity or really feel like they can have a big effect on it. So they'll just be like, all right, I'll just go nine to five because I could do what you said and make myself go white. But even if I did that, what could I affect stuff? What would I be able to do? That's why I really strongly believe in having a program that, that moves fast and that you have a deliverable that makes a difference fairly quickly. For my case, the first deliverable was a year and a half after the milestone decision was made. And the next deliverable was a year after that, a year after that. And then not just the phases, but also the advanced processing build of the software improvements. And it seems like we were always developing, delivering something new that was making a difference, a measurable difference. And it was done cheaply. I was doing it within the budget. Everybody thought I would fail. I think there's a lot of people that didn't fight it because they thought we were going to fail and just give them time, they're going to fail. We didn't fail. And we ended up showing up a lot of these the old way. Do you think the incentives are there? A lot of people complain, oh, government doesn't make, like you're not going to get equity, like you're at a startup or you're not going to get these huge salaries. Is that an issue? Or do you think as long as the people feel like they're close to the mission, can have an impact on something important, they'll be willing to take on what you did? I think so. A lot of the people in the government are like that. You're making a decent salary. You're going to have a house and you're going to take a vacation and you're not going to be a millionaire. And I think that if that's your objective, then you're good. Don't do it, but not on this program. And I found that even the people in on these small businesses, and some of them did very well financially, but they had to be on board with the overall idea. And I know several people that have done very well, not in the government, but I don't know anybody in the government that hadn't done well. They've done, even the guys that do nothing do well. I think the idea is the spirit you want is everybody on the team looking to win the game. And in our case, winning the game was acoustic superiority. And in our case, everybody understood where, what the position they were in, what position they played, and they did it. 
And if we won, they got credit. And we did win. There was no question about that. And we proved it. And people were afraid to take us on because I could show you my data. And let's see your data that shows that we didn't. And they didn't have any. All they had was opinions or they just didn't like it because it didn't fit their ideas on how things should be done for one reason or another. But it worked. And I think we have areas that like this, uh, I don't get the acronym, but this networking issue, getting people on the same. Joint the same. all domain command and control is the new version of yeah. net-centric warfare. So tell me, yeah. what's, what, what's your first bite going to look like? My first, like a tricycle? Like a bite of the elephant. Oh, what's my first bite going to yeah. be for JADC2? Yeah. What is that going to be, and when do we get that out there? Yeah, I, this is a hypothetical question, a rhetorical oh. question. But I'm saying that this is something that you're not going to throw out one day and it's brand new and everybody's going to have to deal with it. I say get it out in pieces. Well, it looks like they're trying to do like a comprehensive, these are going to be all the standards and this is how we're going to run it. You need top down and bottom up, but where's the weight of that? Where I, th- the- I think like for ARCI, the the details were worked out after, we, after the contract was let. In the olden days, we'd have a big thick, specification that would say put your left foot in front of your life or in front of your left foot you'd give that's still the modern days for most (laughs) yeah and i'm saying that doesn't work yeah we're trying to do something here we don't know that detail it'd take us forever to find out and then we'd put it all together and and, it might be wrong and it might be wrong yes so let's get the people who are going to build this okay as you do a document what you're doing do it so that the other guys can all see it it's all done in the open it's transparent but transparency and leadership, those are the two areas that I would focus on. And transparency. How is that transparent? How do I get all the players to understand what's going on? Let's get it down. Well, people don't, a lot of times I hear from officials, they don't actually want that transparency. We want to give you the standard data sets that you ask for, but like, no, transparency it, is actually bad for us. Yes, and I would say, if you don't want to play, that's fine. We'll find somebody else. And then you find out. Yeah, they'll want to play. They'll start getting on board. But as soon as you develop an alternative, that's getting an alternative is one way to get people on board because they know that I'm not the only game in town. Somebody else could step in and do this. And I did that. I did that with Lockheed. I did that with DSR. I did that with the Navy Laboratory. I always had an alternative. And if this was my plan B, and if plan B didn't work, what's my plan C? And I was prepared to go through with it. And it's cheaper overall, right? Because most people yeah. say, like, I don't want to carry two. I just pick the one, and then it's cheaper. I would say that when I had these meetings where I, we everybody get together. Program management reviews type thing? It was a, I called it a submarine sonar technology worker, STDWG. Anyway, there was one guy that came from, initially, one guy that represented the prime contractor would come to those meetings. And his contribution was to tell us as a group that this wasn't going to work. And he did that every month. And then as soon as he'd say, we can't do that, and then when a guy from the small business over here says, yeah, we can. I I can do that. Throw me in, coach. And I would say, okay, let's try him. People were afraid to to not to no-bid it. They were like if they would do it if they really couldn't do it, but if they could do it but they just didn't want to do it, I would have an alternative. And that's what open architecture, open business is all about, alternatives. Do these discussions happen enough in government? Because it feels like usually it's, this is the way it's going to happen and this is feasible and we get everyone to agree that it's feasible. It's almost like the system doesn't accept conflicting opinions and then be like, 
okay, we can try both of them out and see who's right, as opposed to, no, we have to come to the sim- single common definition of what is right, and then we go do that. Do we need some of that competition within government, people with different yeah, ideas, uh, and just see who's right, and just accept that? I think you do. I think everybody should be prepared to justify what they're doing to begin with, and be able to show evidence that your position is the right one. And I think that somebody needs to be aware of what's going on and be able to make the call. Okay, you're not in favor of this or you don't want to do it. Don't have a plan really to meet the end goal, in our case, acoustic superiority. You might have a plan, but it'll, yeah, my plan is you got to give us a lot more money. And I would say that's not starter. There's no more money. Let's make that assumption that we're not going to get more money. But what can you do? And what are we going to do in the near term that's going to make a difference? and demonstrate that it's worthwhile going this way. And I think that's the essence of what we did. And we always delivered, and it always made a difference. And pretty soon, people would say, okay, it works in submarine sonar, but it won't work here. And I, my, my position was, I don't know that it won't work there, and I, but if I had the time, I'd, I'd, I'll take a look at it, and we'll see. And I think you need people that are willing to do that. And I, I think the people on top, the people in charge, I think the problem with the fleet people, the people that come in from the fleet to run things, is that they're not familiar with how the, the civilian sector works and how business works, how this acquisition business works. And there are people that are, the Navy has people that are acquisition specialists that have been there a long time, and they might know how it works. But then one of the things that I've seen in the Navy is that you become a person that is a slave to tradition. So you're afraid, you're unwilling to break tradition, how it's traditionally done. And I've seen that in a lot of cases where people would come in and they'll want to be a train driver, not a pioneer. They have new acquisition pathways and word on the street is like a lot of yeah. the traditional stuff is just creeping back in. and then But it have? is, or the new stuff will be just ignored, artfully ignored though. How do you spell that buzzword? Write that down. Yeah, we're doing... Artificial intelligence. We're super agile DevSecOps. Yeah, yeah. I know. I mean, that, not the way I would run it. Not the way I would run it. We've already talked about why this approach hasn't taken hold elsewhere. There, I think there is that groundswell of wanting to change. How do you just drive this into more acquisition programs? Is it just leadership or I, can I, we just... I think that there are some young leaders out there that can be, that would do this or try it. What would you recommend to them, like, to... So that they can take something, whether it's like, hey, Arky did this and they were successful, or do they need examples of success or what resources do they have? You need to have, do an examination of conscience. Am I here to make a living or am I just being a professional engineer or do I build houses? You're building houses. That's what you should be doing. You're not just making a living. You're not being a professional engineer. You're here to build houses. That's why the government puts you in this position. And you have too many people that are, I want to be an SES or I want to. Right. They, it's know, about being a rank rather than doing something yeah, important. Yeah. And so you've got to change that. And there's a lot of, I've seen a lot of good people that have just, are just whipped. They've come in and they've had big ideas. I would like to do this. Boy, submarines are neat or whatever it is they're working on. And then they get caught up in a grind. I had a Navy captain once tell me my job was to shovel money to Lockheed. I said, I'll be damned if I didn't go to graduate school at Cornell in electrical engineering and shovel money to Lockheed. Yeah, that's why I was like, well, if I'm just doing this for two years and then I get to the next thing, yeah. I'll shovel some money but and get that billet. But yeah. Or look at all the people that I 
I'm in charge of. That's why I deserve to be a this great. Yeah. Or this program spends X billions of dollars that yeah, I've been responsible yeah. for. So I would say the people on top need to. There's people on top that can change the culture. I think from the top, and they do that by understanding what's really going on here and making people feel like they can contribute. But you've got to be able to revisit your assumptions. You've got to be able to make a change. You've got to understand that the world is different now than it was 50 years ago or 20 years ago or last week, maybe. It's changing fast. And so how are you going to contribute now? And then you find people that genuinely want to do that, and you put them in charge. I like to see a lot of young people in charge. I think that they're not baked in their ways. We have too many. The way it was done before, it was a seniority kind of thing. And people get, you know, you wonder how some people got to the positions they are. But uh, so I think that I see nothing wrong with uh, shuffling those people out to some other. Okay, you're in charge of that playground over there. Yeah, get get rid of those people, and you got to make it clear that it's a risk if you don't make change. That's a bigger risk. And if your job is to provide the fleet and the country with the best possible product as quickly as possible, and you've got to and it's not just get them a product. It's got to be maintained and or improved. Part of it is sticking to it. That's a lot part. You can't sit there and be licking your wounds all the time and complaining about it. you got to expect that's part of being in the wilderness. There's Indians out there. Yeah, and I'm going to get shot. Yeah, I'm here to make the system better. I'll get it out there fast. I mean, I guess the worst thing that can happen is they probably move you. Like, usually folks, you're not going to get fired for taking those risks. Is it not as scary as people might think if you just go and do it or your, I, your whole thing is at risk here trying this yeah yeah well it's a risk and you have to make sure that you've again who are the people in favor and who aren't and you got to get powerful people in favor congress is powerful you get some advocates over there for what you're doing that helped for me it was uh, fleet people yeah i had a admiral giambastiani i don't know if you remember him he ended up to be a the what was title he was like the second vice cno Vice CNO. I know. He was vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Oh, gotcha. And so when I first met him, and I gave him a brief on the what I call the submarine sonar master plan. And the plan was written because Congress was holding up some money unless we had a plan. We could demonstrate we had a plan for what we were doing with sonar. And this is pre-ARCI. But, so I came up with a plan, and I worked with closely with a commander who worked at OPNAV and one of my peers at Newick and one of my support contractors that had a had a lot of friends on the Hill. And we wrote this plan, and basically it was showing, here's what we got going on, and here's some ideas on what we'd like to do in the future. And it was we made it 50 pages long and secret, so it wouldn't get passed all over the place. And so it got over to Congress, and it was one of, they had asked other people for a plan, and they said, they, they said my plan was the best plan that they had they've received but it, it wasn't good enough. It didn't Well, it's because it didn't have a lot of details of what the future was going to be, how we're going to get to that future. We didn't have it. We didn't have the details. We had, yeah, we want to get something that's commercial, use commercial stuff, and we wanted to have it hatchable, and we had a list of things we wanted. You had the principles and the general direction. Yeah, but, but that's the thing that it seems like that's happening today with unmanned stuff. You're like Michelle Flournoy, she was just talking about this. The Navy's kind of stuck in a catch-22 where they want to do something, get it to experiment to figure out the con-ops and where they need to go. And then the Congress is, that's not good enough. You didn't say exactly what you're going to buy, how you're going to buy it, and what it's for, so you don't get any money. So it's just like you get in a weird do-loop. Well, how'd, you get, how'd you get out of that? We got something with the money we had already. We had a, 
we had some money that was had been given to DSR for the SBIR program for this backup system that was going to go on the Virginia class. Uh, so we had that. We had some money that the Advanced Development Office asked had some money for future improvements. I had some money for continuing with the legacy approach. I just changed that, that program. We're tying off the legacy system. We're going to have legacy stuff on, and we've got a lot of spares, but we're not going to make any changes to the legacy processing anymore. I'm going to implement this ARCI approach in bytes. If we had four... four. But that wasn't justified in the budget docs? Like, you were allowed to go do that? Yeah. It's just a minor technicality just (laughs) just in the details you know we had money for submarine sonar and so i made this a an ecp you know i don't know if lockheed was on board with it or not i my own feeling was that they were probably afraid to uh, oppose it because it was a real issue with the submariners they really did have an acoustic superiority problem so it sounds like a lot of like your ability to move on things was Coming from, like, the fleet sponsoring your relationship. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I had a very close sponsor. I had a very close relationship with my fleet sponsor. He and me on the same page, and we're going to figure this out. How do we get this to work with the money we got and get it out, get tangible improvement quickly? And how do we maintain that? And how do we leverage off where the commercial industry is going? And what do we project the Moore's Law kind of thing? You didn't have the super detail plan that Congress is used to seeing, but you were able to assuage them with yeah, that kind of... Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like Admiral Giambastiani, when he was, he moved up pretty quickly from, he was Devron 12 as a captain or a commodore, and he made four-star. But the, yeah, he was over at Congress taking equipment up there and playing stuff for him. The fleet was squarely in my court, or our court, and they were helping yeah, we really need this, and look, we've already done this, and here's the difference it made. Look at this target here that we couldn't see before. Or here's something that some of the stuff we were looking at was stuff we had before screened out because we didn't think it had any value. And we were looking at not just nuclear submarines, but diesel submarines. They became an issue. And so we put in this, it was called full-spectrum processing, but it, it was aimed at gaining some information that was in the signature of a diesel submarine. I think the secret was we had good leadership at the fleet, the sponsor level. We had people in the government side that wanted to make it work. And we were able to fight the people that were shooting arrows at it. Once they figured out that, hey, this is going to work, and my God, what are we going to do when this gets over to my pasture? How are we going to fight it off? That's part of change. Most people don't want to change. They don't. I think the people that have been in whatever business you're talking about, if it's been, if they've made a comfortable living and things seem to work, they're not wanted, wanted to change. But in my view, I always thought about these sailors on the, out there and on submarines and when I would go out to sea with them and I'd sit down there in the, in the sonar equipment room and sit in the corner and look at these boxes and look at this dial and how many meetings went into that. And, or... There's an unbelievable amount of work that goes into putting something like that together. You wonder, the people that are doing this, very few of them have ever been on a submarine. And a lot of them don't want to go on a submarine. I mean, I used to make it a, for my, the people that work for me, I'd give them extra credit in their evaluations if they went to see a submarine. People don't want it? I feel like and they, people want to do that no, if you give them the opportunity. No, but they, there's they a lot don't of people, even want to take it? No, they didn't want to go. They had all kinds of reasons. I had... One of the first women ever to go to board, go to sea in a submarine 
worked for me, and I got her on the submarine. I had to go to an admiral to get that approval for her to, her to get on the submarine. But for most of these people, and most of them, some of them have done very well, but we never went to sea. And I, I don't know how I measured the, the value that was for me, but it was a huge value. And you talk to people that have been in harm's way, and you talk to people that have been in situations where they had problems and, and their life was in danger. And really, you feel like it's important work. And that feeling of, of doing something important isn't pervasive. In people, an abstract, people talk like it is. And yeah, in an abstract way, and they talk that way. But do they really feel that way in their gut? Yeah. It's, it's just. It's like, do they have opportunity? Like, where'd you find that? Was it just like in your budget? Like, I'm just going to carve out this part of the budget and send people like on the on no, this. No, I didn't. We'll just take it. I didn't budget for anything. I I mean, for that kind of stuff, it's training. And I figure out our budget was big enough that I, it would be in the noise someplace, but. I saw a value to it. I wanted people that I think a lot of, one of my most valuable, I call him a colleague, he was a retired Navy chief. I don't even know if he was in long enough to retire. One of the smartest guys, Paul Bruins was his name. I got so much from him because he was a, a sonarman, been to sea many times and understood what I was trying to do and what they were doing and what they were having to deal with. And it was just a dose of reality. And I tended to surround myself with those kind of people that, that really understood at a working level, because they've done it, what this is and why it's important and what can really be done and what's just a bunch of fluff and and get rid of the fluff. I said, we can't afford that, you know, now. And that's why I say when we set up ARCI, it was, my view was, hey, this is gonna be, and made my garage and what do I really need? And as it turned out, there's a lot of stuff I didn't need that a normal program manager would have assumed that I got to deal with this, these people. And I think it's much more, the people you're dealing with is a much bigger part of the job, much more important part of the job than the actual stuff, the hardware and the software is people. I think they need to groom people with that kind of attitude, leaders, and they don't. Let's just talk a little bit as we close. What is some of the outcomes, the legacies of this program, and what are some final thoughts you would like to leave the audience with? I think... To me, it's the people that were involved in it. They all learned a lot. I think everybody did. I think for most people, it's their perception of how things should be done has changed. People have learned that as part of the change, things have not gone according to the way they might have planned it. So they've taken arrows or they've, their job has changed how they view the world. What I'm most proud of is that everybody, I think everybody's got the spirit, got the right spirit. So that came, and I'm, what I'm hopeful for is that, that all these people as individuals can go out and testify that, that they've actually done it and be advocates for that kind of change and not be afraid to do it. When I was in POIWS and we were looking at how do you do this for the Navy, we came up with a, a survey, and we had 20 attributes, and we were people that ranked those attributes as which ones you think are the most important players. And so... Have a clearly defined requirement might be one, and have budget and stuff, and we're looking at impediments to change, and so we gave them to two general types of people, to the people that were on part of the program, and people who weren't part of the program, and we compared the two results, and the people that weren't part of the program, the the biggest impediments were things like 
the Congress, these laws, or the budget process, or those kind of things. And the biggest impediment to change for the people that were involved in a program was fear of change. That was what I had picked, too, when I did it. But it's just the attitude you have is you're afraid to do it. There are so many ways that the organism of the military-industrial complex works to fight off the white blood cells come out and fight these changes that you get worn down and pretty soon either you're worn down and you won't do it because you're worn down or you're killed off or you just don't care you're in it just to make money that you know it doesn't go anywhere to make a change you got to have a customer that wants change and i would say that work for a customer that wants change and that knows what he wants and your job is to produce that change You've got a lot of latitude, more than you think you do, on what your resources are. Maybe your budget says this, but hey, you're leveraging, maybe some of those products can be leveraged, somebody else is paying for it. And maybe it's somebody or another program officer, or even in another service. When I was on this National Academy of Sciences for the Air Force, they had five, five initiatives for the future. And if I see if I can remember, one of them was a hypersonic weapon, and I forgot what, I, but the one that I remember is directed energy. Yep. So my question was, and I'm sitting around here with a bunch of retired three stars and a four star, and I'm going, well, and we have a, another general or a senior guy for the Air Force talking about what they're doing with directed energy. And I said, the Navy's putting a lot of money in directed energy too. What are we learning from there? What are the common elements that we could collaborate with the Navy? And he said, well, we have a, like a symposium every year. And I'm going, well, that's, okay, you're talking it. But they weren't really, there was no tangible evidence that they were taking a product from one service and giving it to the other. On either side, they were doing their own thing in parallel. And I'm like, why don't we collaborate on this? Is that like the, one of the kind of like budget issues? Because you, you said the fact that the budget had crashed so much, you just had to do things differently. If they can just request, oh, more money will fix this. I'll, they can just build their own stuff. Remember, the remember the Al Gore Hammer Awards? Yeah. Uh, we had two of them. The first one, we got everybody. We had over 500 people who were working on the program between the government and Lockheed and everybody. And we met in the, the Hyatt Regency Hotel in a big auditorium. I received one, and the guy from Lockheed, my counterpart, received one, and the one from DSR received one. And we each had to give a little pitch. And my pitch was, if anything, we had too much money. And there was an admiral that stood up and walked out. <laughs> no way. <laughs> and the problem was that we were spending money on stuff that was going to be obsolete soon or didn't really need to. We spent it because we had a budget it, and somehow it, we never looked at it. And so it was a little bit here and there, but it ended up to a lot of money. And so I say, be thankful for the money you have. What are you spending money on now that you don't need to spend money on? That we're, that's not part of the plan to make acoustic superiority a reality. People always, in this debate today, we have that legacy versus like new modernization and everyone's like in a, up in arms. Who makes these trade-offs? Shouldn't they be happening at that kind of level? Yeah, yeah. It should be the initiative of the program office yeah. in some respects. Because it, it seemed like you guys had like a follower. Like you guys came out of hey, we're going to be like the backup or the follower. But just by having that opportunity, you actually were able to show yeah. like with less money I could do better. Yeah, we were. they had another group to look at the submarine of the future. And I, was, I had the legacy. 
and okay, we're going to be a bank so that the money of the submarine in the future can come back and take our budget to pay for something they didn't think of. And I'm going, hey, we're going to make the these submarines that we have in the fleet right now and that we're planning on delivering in the next few years, we're going to make them relevant. And we're going to make them superior when they get out there. In a year and a half, we start. That's when it gets out there. We're starting now. And we're going to do with the money we have. What? These future subs, the future sub at that time was the Virginia. They changed their program to, to incorporate what we were doing. And I think having that, that legacy approach, I think that was the right place to do it from because I could turn off work and use that money and redirect it. So I did. Nobody said I couldn't. I'm sure some people are like, wow. They, yeah, there are a lot of people there. What are you doing? And I'm going, hey. That's my bread and butter. Exactly. Right. And that's, so it worked. And I think that the government needs to do that. I think we need to do that. I think we need to, and we need to look at the future as something that's real. Change. Take an honest look at our stuff today. How would we do if we had to fight Ukraine? Where they're, they're, the, the people in Ukraine are showing what could be done when they're lice in the line. When they're proving that, and I won't stand up for the Russians. I don't know how, what they do to get their ships uh, in place. There's a lot of criticism on that. But I can tell you that they're facing, I think, pretty innovative weaponry or tactics from Ukraine. And I'm, my wondering is, how would we do? against somebody who's equally innovative. There's a lot of, what's China doing? I don't know. I know that we had two two Aegis ships in the South China Seas that collided with people. How did that happen? With all those sensors we have on Aegis? And they're also pretty frail. I heard one ran aground several years ago, and just because it ran aground, like the whole system went down. Yeah, yeah. So I'm saying, to, to me, those are red flags. And hopefully somebody's somebody's taking action to fix that but you're saying also like the i think the normal tagline from the navy and otherwise is you gave us a three percent increase and inflation is this and we need a 10 or a 15 or a 20 percent increase you're saying no there's money there to things that are obsolete or otherwise not going to be relevant in this fight you should be making those changes now and proving something will work and then you can show it and then exactly and the answer is not more money and just give me another big chunk it's clean your own house first that's not the normal way of doing business thing you got to do it somebody's got to do it and i think you need smart leaders and you need uh, people in control people that are really doing leading and you have and smart people there's a lot of smart people i think really you know what i found was i put myself in this category you got people that are reasonably intelligent and if given the opportunity could do a lot better. And for me, that acoustic superiority crisis was a wake-up call. And it, it, a lot of things became clear when that happened. I wasn't at the point where my, I thought my job was shoveling money to Lockheed. I'd made a lot of assumptions about how things work and what I thought I could do at my level. And it wasn't until that crisis came about and I did an examination of conscience and found out I'm a big part of this too. And by God, if it's, I have anything to do, it's going to be done different. And I, I started doing things different, and I was doing it fast. And there was a lot of people that didn't really understand it, but because it was such a high priority for the submarine side, they weren't willing to stand in my way. And we produced, and we did it quick enough, that, and we had it documented well enough that nobody could call our bluff and say, it doesn't really work, you cook the books. or No, 
it was a fact that we did it. And yeah, there's issues when you do things fast and and I, not everybody's comfortable with it. And there's things that go on that you, you, if you knew about it, you'd fix. And so in seven years, I was the biggest critic of how we were doing things because I saw all kinds of things that I would change. But if you stand back and take a look at how we did compared to everybody else, we did pretty daggone good. We were running circles around everybody else. And so I think, how do we get that spirit in the game? And I think there's a lot of people at top that are good at giving speeches and talking abstract fluff and they have you know impressive titles and they have liturgy of lineage of all the people that they've worked with and stuff and at the end of the day they don't have any plan other than talk that's true who does the planning is incredibly important we do program planning almost by committee and it's just what plan is that it should just be someone who's been thinking about this a long time who's almost integrated that and able to through collaboration with others bring that to fruition yeah should programs really be like personality driven almost to an extent as opposed to what it is today i think if you're in a program where you're going into the frontier of the wilderness you better be person you better have a strong personality And you're going to have to operate a lot out of instinct and not just it worked this way in the past, so this is the way we do it. You don't have a train track you're following there and a schedule. You're out there and you're not sure what you're going to find. But you know that here's the goal. I better find something that's valuable, that shows value. And, And you want to be able to look at the sailor or whoever's going to use this product and look them in the eye and feel good about it and not hang your head because you didn't. If only Congress had given me more money, or if only if only I didn't have this boss, or if only if only somebody else had done something. Look and see what you can do for yourself, for us. To me, that's what a leader does. I think that's a great place to wrap up. We're definitely in kind of crisis mode in these years going into the 2020s. So I think that's like an amazing thing to really think about. All of us have a duty and examine our own conscience and really try to break those barriers because. It takes courage, as you said, and you're going to take those arrows. But if you push forward with conviction, then you can really have an impact, not just on your life and the lives of those around you, but potentially like the course of national security, right? So Bill Johnson, this has been great. You've given me a lot of information. If the listeners want to go into exactly what happened with requirements and acquisition and funding and all these things, there's great case studies. We're going to put those out on the website, so definitely download them there. Bill also has a bunch of great articles on ARCI, the ARCI, Acoustic Rapid Cots Insertion. So if you want to try this in your own program and you need you know, examples of success that you can take to your leaders and really build this thing out, definitely come over to Acquisition Talk. We'll post up this, uh, this discussion, notes, and all those types of literature. Have that at your resource. But this has been a great time. Bill Johnson, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Thank you, Eric. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.